Hello, welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. This is a podcast where we take a little time and delve deeply into the issues that are interesting to the authors and intellectuals and activists and artists that we talk to. I hope you like this effort to bring a little depth to the conversation. If you do, go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review, won't you? Be very helpful to spread the word. America seems unable to decide how to educate its children. We swing between reforms, unsure of what we need more of and which direction to go. There are ongoing debates about how to shrink the education gaps between the well-off and the under-resourced. There are successes, but they seem to struggle for acknowledgement and replication. Arne Duncan served as President Obama's Secretary of Education. His assessment of the nation's effort to educate children and of his own tenure in the federal office is How Schools Work, an inside account of failure and success from one of the nation's longest-serving secretaries of education. You talk about the lies schools uh, tell their students. What are some of the truths of education in America? I think there's some really important truths. For me, the ultimate, I don't know if it's a truth yet, but for me, the ultimate hope is that education is the great equalizer. That regardless of socioeconomic status or race or, or zip code or background, that if you work hard, if you have an opportunity to get a great education, you can accomplish whatever you want. And that the, the, the pursuit of that truth, I will say, is why I've devoted my, my life to education, because I've seen all my life what great teachers, what great principals, what great after-school programs can do to give kids a chance coming from extraordinarily difficult backgrounds. Uh, Pre-K included in that. And, you know, Jeff Bezos just announced that he wanted to spend, I don't know, a billion perhaps, or part of $2.1 billion on establishing a a core of Montessori-like pre-K schools around the country. What do you think of the notion of Jeff Bezos doing that? I think we all collectively have to do so much more in this space, and I'm very, very pleased and thankful that Jeff is devoting some of his resources to do this. Um, Everywhere I travel, I say if I had one additional tax dollar, one additional dollar to spend, I would put it behind high-quality early childhood education. And James Heckman, who's a Nobel Prize-winning economist at the the University of Chicago, has done 30, 40-year longitudinal studies and has found a 7-to-1 ROI return on investment. For every dollar we invest in pre-K, we, as a, as, a, as a society, get back $7, less dropout rates, less teenage pregnancy, less crime, more productive citizens, more people contributing to society. So public sector, private sector, wealthy individuals like Jeff, whatever we can do to give every four-year-old, and I would argue every three-year-old who wants and whose parents want them to have a chance to go to pre-K, to give them that opportunity so they can enter kindergarten ready to be successful academically, socially and emotionally that's the best investment we can make well seattle has done that they've they've working towards a universal pre-k uh washington state under governor gregoire has pushed mightily for early childhood education and had a lot of success in at least establishing that i'm wondering what does it mean when yes a private billionaire decides that he should set up schools himself are we are we undermining public education in that sense far from undermining it, I would argue the challenge is that we have not had the political will to make this this opportunity available to every single child. And I was very pleased um, during our time in the Obama administration to put more than a billion dollars behind high-quality pre-K and to help uh, 100,000 or more students have that chance to go. 
But the truth is that there are still, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of young people who don't have that opportunity. And we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. We know that the average child coming from a disadvantaged uh, background starts kindergarten, you know, six months, a year behind. And the dirty secret in education is often we don't do a great job of catching those kids up. And I can draw a pretty straight line from those students who, those children who enter, you know, our, our schools, you know, this time of year in the fall at five years old who aren't ready um, and those that will drop out, you know, down the road, you know, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years from now. And so we have to do better. We, we have to do better. Um, I would agree. I wish that the private sector, I wish philanthropy didn't have to step into this space. But until we have the political will to make this available, um, I welcome I welcome uh, folks uh, stepping up to the plate to create opportunity for children and for communities uh, where it simply doesn't exist. That's that's it's just not fair. It's absolutely not fair. I've been reading your critics of, of, on the reviews of how schools work and um, from The Washington Times and Hoover Institute and Wall Street Journal. And here's here, I just want to get your thoughts on a broader question here. Mr. Duncan, this is from The Washington Times. The uh, writer is uh, Bill Evers. Stanford University's Hoover Institution, a more conservative think tank. Mr. Duncan says critics of Common Core were uninformed and had not read the standards. He never indicates that he seriously considered the possibility that critics might be knowledgeable and acting out of good motives. I know you're going to tell me you did consider that. What I want to know is why is education amongst intellectuals such a divisive topic? Uh, that's a great question that I don't think I have a good answer to, but let me, let me just explain that one specifically. So the question is always, what were we fighting against? What were we rebelling against? And what we, we were rebelling against is a situation in the United States where we had many states that had dummied down, had reduced their standards, and were actually lying to young people and their families and telling them that they were on track to be successful in college once they graduated from high school, and they weren't even close. Um, I start my book, How Schools Work, with a, with a long, uh, painful, heartbreaking story of a young man that I, I worked with who was passed along the system. Um, and when I got to him during his junior year in high school, between his junior and senior year, he was probably at about the third or, grade, third or fourth grade level, and he was on the B honor roll. Um, we talk a lot about the cost of college, and, and it's too expensive here in the United States. What we don't talk about is that we spend $8, 9000000000 billion with a B eight to nine billion dollars each year in high school graduates to take remedial classes in college. That means taking, paying college tuition, using college scholarship money, family's money, taxpayers' money to take high school classes and not get any college credit. That's what we were, we were rebelling against and just saying we want every state to have high enough standards. And the simple measuring stick there being if young people meet these standards, uh, then they don't have to take remedial classes. And to further clarify, we never said that we at the federal level would have to set those standards, not even close. What we said is if you're in Texas, University of Texas could set those standards. You're in you know, Washington, University of Washington could set those standards. So we're just saying when we lie to children and tell them they're prepared academically to be successful and they're not even in the ball game, I think that's one of the most insidious things that we in education can do. But you want standards set nationwide. Um, we want, actually, we didn't say nationwide. We just said for each state, we just wanted standards high enough so that the, the, the major institution of higher education would, would guarantee the young people hitting those standards could actually take college credit-bearing classes once they arrived. We didn't think that was uh, all that controversial. And yet it continues to be, and the whole Common Core idea continues to be controversial in many states. 
and and uh, some people <laughs> rebel against it. Um, but, but, yeah, there's absolute truth to that, and we got pushback from both the left and the right. But at the end of the day, there's lots of noise. But we saw over over 40 states raise standards, and that we thought was a, a huge step in the right direction. So what states call those standards, whether they're the Illini standards or the Buckeye standards or the Hoosier standards, it doesn't quite matter to, to, to me or to anybody. But we just want high standards where students aren't, again, being passed through a system and then having to take remedial classes once they graduate from high school. One of your um, suggestions is that when somebody graduates high school, they should either be on the track towards college or on the track to some vocation. In other words, the last two years of college kind of mirror what happens in Europe, where it's much more focused and rigorous. Is that going to be possible? Well, what I really argue for is is a new system. We've had a K-12 system that I think has served our country extraordinarily well for the past century. But I think it's, uh, frankly, insufficient, you know, for the next five decades, and I would actually argue for the next five years. And I would love us to move to a pre-K to 14 system where, again, our babies would have the chance to get off to a great start, um, enter kindergarten, ready to be successful. And then some form of education beyond high school um, should be the norm. Uh, I would argue must be the norm. And four-year universities, two-year community colleges, trade, technical, vocational training, um, we should just, you know, have a, a, a range of options to let young people find their passion, uh, find their genius, figure out what they want to do. But as you know, so well, it's very, very difficult in today's economy, if not impossible, to get a good-paying job only with a high school diploma. So graduating from high school is a very significant and important milestone, but that's got to be not the last step on a, a young person's education journey, but just setting them up, um, creating an opportunity for, for them to take that next step. Setting them up in, in high school with college credits or some kind of voc tech t- teaching? Industry certification, exactly. And if, every, if, you, if you think about what if as a nation we had a goal that every single high school graduate would graduate, yes, with that high school diploma in their hand, but also um, a college credit, uh, an industry certification, or in a perfect world, both. And just think how much confidence that would give them to, to uh, again, continue to pursue their education and prepare themselves for this, you know, flat world, for this globally competitive economy. Uh, your critics and and your uh, your complimenters looked at this book and said this is a good primer for co- for um, education, and it's also a bit of a political document. Now you say you're not a politician, so is there anything in here that says Arnie Duncan wants to be the next mayor of Chicago? Uh, uh, there's zero in there that says that. I actually. <laughs> told the public a couple of days ago that I'm not running for mayor. So um, I have, uh, I love, I love policy. Um, I love working with, with uh, young people. I love trying to create opportunities, um, but I've, I never have been a politician and, and I'm not planning on doing that anytime soon. I, I, I got a couple minutes left. So let me ask you about the South side of Chicago and about your mother. Why is the South side of Chicago still such an intractably violent place and what's the role what would be a well-funded role for schools to kind of cut that violence down so so we have um real challenges on the south and west side uh, here in chicago in terms of violence that's actually what i'm devoting my life to trying to make our communities uh safe for our children again and give them them their childhoods back i was on the, the west side this morning i'll be on the south side uh tomorrow morning and I, I see them as real challenges. I don't begin to see them as intractable. And I would argue the, the lack of investment, um, the lack of opportunities, the lack of uh, a chance for young people to earn money in the legal economy 
um, has exacerbated uh, the violence. We've had a, a breakdown in trust, unfortunately, at the macro level with the police. Um, they're amazing individual police that, that we work with all the time that have been you know, extraordinarily important to our work to, to reducing violence. And we're working directly with the young men most likely to shoot and be shot. But what we've seen is just the, the, the chance, the opportunity for absolute transformation. And so many of our young men who have uh, been hurt and some have frankly hurt others um, when given this chance to, to work with us and, and move away from the street life. Um, they're jumping that opportunity. We're trying to grow as fast as we can. For all the work we do, we have a waiting list of men trying to get in every single day. And so I am, it breaks my heart, uh, the history of what has happened here, but I'm actually very, very hopeful. And these young men are going to lead the city where we need to go. And I say all the time, um, they're not the problem. They're actually the solution to the problem. And we got to walk with them and partner them, partner with them and help them create safer environments um, for their for their own children, for their community, for their block. That's how we're going to solve this. Well, you talked to Mrs. Uh, Malajic of the Lewis School of Excellence, and her argument is that every that the students that are most in need are surrounded by a community of care from the from the janitors to the school guards to the uh, cafeteria people that when a student comes back after trauma he is surrounded by or she is surrounded by a community of care that seems both it, 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 go i just go said ahead, that, that seems both doable and yet um <laughs> uh not always done so where's the where do you think the disconnect is between that effort it's you know some people say oh, it's yeah, school I, unions some people say it's money where do you see the disconnect no 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 it, it's easy again it's very easy to point fingers and lay blame I have zero interest in do that in doing that what she said was is both brilliant um, and I think brilliant in its simplicity where we have young people where mom is an alcoholic or on crack and dad is locked up or gone when there isn't a grandma or an auntie we collectively have to come come together to create a sense of family and to show love. And that's schools, that's nonprofits, that's social service agencies, that's churches. And when we don't do that, then we, as a society, we collectively, we have failed that young person. And, but when they have strong relationships and they have positive role models and they have adults who believe in them and may see some talents and skills and genius in them that they may not even see themselves, then despite that trauma, despite that extraordinary adversity, I actually become very, very hopeful. And so this is all about relationships. I always say that you know, programs don't change lives. You know, schools don't change lives. Uh, relationships do. And that's what this is about. And for us, just systemically, child by child, school by school, and it's actually a relatively small percent of, of children, um, but where we're just not seeing that support that they desperately need uh, from anyone at home or from a relative, then we collectively, I would say, have a moral obligation, not an educational obligation, a moral obligation to step into that void. And last thing I'll say is when we don't do that, I'll tell you exactly what happens. Then the streets raise these young people because the gangs are always there. They're always hiring. They're always need a lookout. They always need someone to, to handle some drugs or to, to move some guns around. And when we in traditional society, mainstream society, when we are absent from the, from these young people's lives, um, those, those gang members are always present and it is our fault. It is our fault when that happens. Your mom was your inspiration. Uh, who, and and you, she passed it down to you, family-wise. Who are you passing these ideas down to and these actions down to? Well, I think we're all learning together. So, again, we have a, 
uh, you know, hundreds of young men across the city who we're spending time with every single day, who I think are going to lead, this, lead uh, us to where we need to go. We have a set of high school students and now college freshmen who are fighting so hard against this issue of, of gun violence, who spoke at the rally, the March in Washington with the Parkland students that partnered extraordinarily well together. And I don't even see it so much as me passing it down to them. They're still teaching me, and I'm still learning from them. So we're all in this together, and the challenges are real and urgent. Um, but again, because of their leadership, because of their commitment, because of the work I see these young people doing every single day against almost you know ex- just extraordinary odds, um, they inspire me. They inspire me. They teach me, and they keep me going. All right, sir. My, I'm a Chicagoan. I'm I'm coming back to see my nephew tomorrow. As a matter of fact, he lives on the north side. My parents grew up on the west side, Maxwell Street, Division Street, and uh, they were products of a great community and a pretty great education system. Be nice to see that history repeat itself. It, it has to. We have no choice. It, it has to, and we can't rest um, until we get to that point. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Take care. Arnie Duncan, his new book is How Schools Work, an inside account of failure and success from one of the nation's longest-serving secretaries of education. An excerpt from this interview ran on my other podcast, In the Moment, from Town Hall, Seattle. I hope you like these conversations. If you do, go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review, won't you? Let other people know about it. That way we can get other people to hear it. Share it on Facebook and all the other various social media as well. And thank you for listening at length.